Our scripture for today is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can find that on page 976 in the Black Bibles in front of you. Page 976. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Um, my name is Steve. I'm one of the leaders here, and we're going to continue our walk through the book of Ephesians. Before we do, though, um, we're going to do something that's a little bit unusual for us, at least in the gathering, um, when we get together on Sundays. This happens quite a bit um, in, in smaller groups, um, but we're, we're going to pray for somebody. Now, before we do, I want to read um, out of James chapter 5. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Um, we are going to pray for one of our own, um, Mary. She contacted me, and we've actually been praying for her um, for a while. She has an illness that um, has not been diagnosed, and at this point is undiagnosable. It strikes her when she is moving toward and into community. And so it has hindered her ability to attend community group. It has hindered her ability to join us on Sunday mornings. Um, it has blocked her from being part of our community. And so, um, like I said, we normally would pray for people. Um, that's our normative. We pray for people in our community groups. We pray for people, in, and we're doing it all the time. Prayer is, is vital, um, and, and it's a normal part of our practice as a church. But we've decided this time that we're actually going to um, ask the church to join us in prayer 
Um, I am going to be praying, and I'm going to ask the elder candidates to come up, um, since the Scripture says, to ask for uh, the elders of the church. And so, Mary, I'm going to ask you to come on up and take a seat. You guys come on up with me. Um, Clint, Skip, and, and Dan. And I'm going to explain to you guys what we're doing and why we're doing it as we do it, um, because this is a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, we believe that God has the power to heal. God has the power to raise the dead. God has the power to speak into existence what does not previously exist. And we believe that He is a God of redemption and restoration, that that is the heart of the gospel, that He is a God who redeems what is broken and ultimately restores it. And that's the big picture. God is in the process of ultimately redeeming and restoring not just individuals, but the entire created order. We live in this in-between time where while we have been declared right because we're followers of Christ and, and, and Mary has confessed her faith in Jesus, um, we're still awaiting the final restoration of all things. God, eventually, we will get new bodies. That's part of our Christian faith, that God will ultimately restore all things. In this in-between time, um, we are called upon to plead with God um, that He would heal, because um, He can. He doesn't always, as is evidenced in the Scripture, but that's not because it's outside of His power. It's always inside of His will. And so we are in obedience, going to pray for Mary, um, and I'm going to ask you to join us in that, okay? Uh, we are going to anoint her with oil. Um, the oil is not magic. The oil is not, um, it's just oil. But here's the deal. What the oil does is it points us to God. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who hovered over the world at creation. The Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit is the one that God sends forth inactivity to heal, to wake up the dead, and to heal those that are sick. And so in the anointing of oil, what we're doing is reminding ourselves of our dependence on the Spirit of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, okay? And so this is what we're going to do. I am going to ask you to take a minute, and, and we're just, all of us are going to pray as a body for Mary. We're going to agree together um, that we would like to see our sister healed, okay? If you want to pray out loud, please pray quietly to yourself. Um, you can pray out loud if that's the way you would like it. If, if you're not a follower of Christ, this may be really weird to you. Um, just bear with us, okay? Um, if you are, join us in a prayer of faith that, that God would heal our sister. And then um, I will lead us in prayer for her. So let's just take a minute right now, and, and let's, let's just take a moment and pray for her. Mary, I'm going to anoint your head um, with oil. I'm going to ask you to open up your hands. Nothing magic here, but just a prayer of receiving, opening it up, dependent on God. And we're going to pray for you.
Father God, um, I come to you and I pray for my sister. She's ill. Her body is broken. And we don't know what the cause is in our best medicine. Can't identify it. But Lord, we know that you know. And we know, Lord, that it could be from any number of sources. And so we would pray that if this would in any way be from the enemy of demonic origin, of attack on her, that, Lord, you would bind him um, and everyone with him and all of his power and all of his stuff. Lord, you are victorious over him, and, uh, Lord, we are yours. And so we pray that, um, that if this is in any way a spiritual attack, that you would, um, in your power, crush him and his power over our sister. We do pray, Lord, that you would remove the illness. We ask, Lord, that you would, um, in the power of your spirit, restore her to health, that you would give her um, clear vision, healthy body, um, a lack of nausea. Um, Lord, that you would restore her and her body so that she might be able to enter freely into community, that, Lord, we might benefit from the presence of our sister and our sister might benefit from the presence of others who love you and follow you, that she might be able to have the freedom of movement that she needs to serve you and follow you and to love you and to love those who love you and, and um, to do what you've called her to do. Father, we know you are the one who redeems and restores, and we know that even as we pray this, Lord, we ask in faith, knowing fully that you have the power. Lord, we know it's not our faith that does it, it's your power. It's your ability. And so we come to praise you, to glorify you, to love you, and ask that you would do this in grace for your name's sake, for your glory, for her good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, we are going to continue um, our study in the book of Ephesians. And um, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at a parallel passage to what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at that idea that, um, therefore, you've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And we talked about how that's incredibly personal, that the redemptive work of Jesus is incredibly personal. It speaks to you as an individual. It calls you as an individual to life, right? Even as we pray for Mary, we realize that the God of the universe, the God who created all things, who spoke all things into existence, is personally involved in our lives and personally cares for us. His, his love is, is that acute, that focused, that, that it would focus even in on um, us as individuals with all the billions of people in the world and all the billions of people who, who've lived God loves us, right? But God isn't just in the business of saving individuals. God's vision is not just to take a bunch of individuals and restore them through the redemptive work of the cross. His, his purpose is actually to create a, a new humanity, to, to create a whole new people, right? So, so it's not just personal, it's global. In fact, it's cosmic. He is um, going to ultimately, through the work of his son, Redeem and restore all of creation. Redeem and restore all things. And that's kind of where we're going with the second section is we're going to be talking about how God is actually redeeming a people, not just individuals, but a people. 
um, a, a, a new humanity that will ultimately live in his kingdom for his glory. And in order to do that, I think we're going to have to identify um, and, and, and explore some, some technical theological stuff this morning. So I'm kind of warning you, we're going to go a little seminary on you, all right? We're, we're going we're to get a little technical, we're going to look into some biblical history, but it's because we need to in order to understand our text. Um, the, the name of our, our sermon today is The Outsiders. Um, I named it after a, a, a novel by S.E. Hinton. Some of you read it when you were in middle school, right? It's like standard reading. Um, this, this group of black leather jacket wearing outsiders from the wrong side of the tracks. They just don't fit in, right? And they find their own way of fitting in by ultimately creating a new group of insiders that are outsiders, right? I think that book has struck such a chord in our culture and has become such popular reading, standard fare for, I think, eighth grade English, is because... We all understand what it is to be an outsider. We all understand what it is to feel like we don't just belong. We're, we're a little outside of the circle where we're supposed to be. Right? When I was a kid, um, I sensed this in, in multiple times as I was kind of thinking through this. When I was a little kid, I would get together with my brother and my cousins. And um, uh, <laughs> I was two and a half years younger than my brother. And my cousins were his age and older. And what that meant was that when we got together, I was kind of the oddball, and so we'd get together, and I'm a little kid, and I'm like, let's play, right? And they're too cool to play because they're like a little older than me, right? But they have to do something with me. And so, no joke, I'm not making this up, we would, we would play house. That's what we would do. And uh, invariably, they would make me the dog. And I thought that was awesome because I got to run around and bark and pant, and, and, and it wouldn't take long before they put me out, <laughs> No joke, like put me outside, like literally outside. And then they would go do the big kid stuff, right? And I'm outside running around like a dog because I'm still playing, right? Um, literally an outsider, okay? Um, that's a cute story. That actually happened to me. It explains a lot. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the reality is growing up, I really did in many ways feel like an outsider. I think we all did. I mean, that's kind of one of the things I was looking at. I was just researching different quotes and researching different people. What I found was ironic was, you know the number of people who, when they're talking about their lives, just say, I've always been kind of an outsider. It's like everybody. Everybody can't be an outsider, right? But we all feel that way, right? I remember when I was in high school, my mom had just moved us to Southern California from Northern California in the 80s. In Northern California, we were 501 wearing, T-shirt wearing, uh, loggers, um, fishermen, and pot smokers. I mean, that's, that's what was up there, okay? We moved down to Southern California. My mom enrolls me in a Christian school. Total different world. This is pre-internet, you guys. Some of you don't even know what that means, but, but it was really a different culture. People dressed differently. They spoke differently. Um, I was all of a sudden in like this middle school Christian prep school, so it was like, you know, a different economic, socioeconomic group, and, and I really felt like a weirdo, and, and, and this is what I remember. There was this thing called the lunch shack, Okay, everybody went, not, nobody went to the cafeteria. There was a cafeteria everybody could go to, but, but only the nerds went to the cafeteria. Everybody went to the lunch shack. It was a shack out in the middle of the quad. And I would watch it from a distance, and people would go in one side and amazingly come out the other. And they would go in, and they would come out with food. And that place freaked me out. I'm like, dude, why? Because I didn't know what happened in there. I didn't know if it was cash only. I didn't know if you needed your student ID. I didn't know. I mean, it was just alien. You're like, and I'm looking back, and I'm like, how idiotic was that? I could just walk in and say, how do you get food in here? You're right? like, but, but when you're an outsider, the last thing you ever want to do is draw attention to the fact that you're an outsider. 
the last thing you ever want to do is stick out. Are you guys, you relate with this at all? Am I the only weirdo? I mean, I think we've all, at one point or another, had that sense of being alienated, of being outside. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable place to be. It's a hard place to be. But I actually think it's a, a universal human condition. As I was researching this, um, I found some quotes that I thought were relevant. Um, since we had the wrong bulletins printed this week, they're not in your bulletin, so I'm just going to read you a couple. Eugene um, Ionescu, who is a, um, a playwright who was part of the absurdist movement, and, and some of that means nothing to you guys, and that's fine, um, but these were a group of guys, Edward Albee and some others, that just wrote plays that explored the absurd nature of the human condition. They were existentialists who ultimately believed there was no meaning beyond life other than in the existing of life. Um, I, I won't try to explain it further. I got into this stuff before I became a believer, and it was incredibly compelling and incredibly depressing at the same time. Well, this is what he had to say. He said, there is no religion in which everyday life is not considered a prison. There is no philosophy or ideology that does not think that we live in alienation. And I would agree with him for the most part. I think Christianity is different. Most religions really are about how you escape this condition to establish another. In other words, we're alienated. We're outside of something we desperately crave and want. It's a universal human condition. We all feel outside of something we desperately need and desperately want. Now, the difference with Christianity is, is that God's goal is not to deliver us from this condition to another. His goal is ultimately to come into our condition and, and redeem it and restore it. What we've lost isn't out there. It's actually in humanity, but a redeemed humanity, as we'll talk about, um, because it needs to be centered on the glory of God. That's what we've lost. But there's a sense of being alienated. Gene Webster, who was an American novelist, said this, half the time I don't know what they're talking about. Their jokes seem to relate to a past that everyone but me has shared. And the reason I grab this is I love this phrase, I'm a foreigner in a world and I don't understand the language. I'm a foreigner in the world, and I just don't understand the language. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But there are times when you, you just feel like you are outside. You are outside of the safe place. You are outside of the joy place. You are outside of the meaningful place. You are outside of the place that makes sense. And it's cold. And it's isolating. And it's lonely. And I think all of us know that feeling. I think all of us have dealt with that because it's a universal sense of alienation because there is something disjointed in the universe and we long to be inside. We long to be in that safe, warm place. It's a universal human problem. And that's why I think we see in every culture and every religion a sense in which we must be delivered from where we are to something different. And I think that's exactly the tension that our passage is going to explore. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Now, this is going to get kind of technical, and we're going to unpack this, but just follow along. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All right, Paul tells us twice to remember. Did you notice that? Remember at one time you were Gentiles. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. 
I think that's kind of difficult for us because the reality is, unlike the Ephesians, unlike the New Testament readers, we are not familiar, a lot of us aren't at least, with the biblical context in which these statements are made. Some of you are reading and you're like, what is this whole thing about circumcision and uncircumcision? What's this whole thing about covenants and covenants of promise and, and the commonwealth of Israel? And, and what do you mean there's no God in the world? Isn't God everywhere? Right? I mean, this just doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand the historical um, uh, progressive revelation of God's will that, that the biblical story gives us. But there's a framework to understanding all of history that Scripture itself gives us. And we're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to unpack that this morning. And the reason we're going to do that is I think that is worth unpacking. It is the narrative framework of the story of God, the f- narrative framework for understanding God's plan of redemption and restoration. We need to understand what God has done so that we can ke- contextualize what God is doing and understand it. Uh, and we can read the New Testament and not get lost every time it starts talking about it. So we're going to take a little bit of time, and we're going to talk about how God has revealed Himself in history. All right, first of all, I'll let you know, He has revealed Himself through a series of covenants. God has revealed Himself in history through a series of covenants. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a lot like a contract. When you sit down to buy a car, you sit down and, and you and, and the dealership sign a contract. Okay, it's a deal between you and them. And basically what you're saying is I'm committing myself to something. You're committing yourself to something. And we're both signing on to this agreement. And there are, there's a legal consequence if we don't live up to our, our bargain, right? Um, and, and the bargain is defined by the words on the page, right? Which is why a lot of times it's incredibly, it's, it's like, you know, what we're looking for is not what am I legally bound to, but what loopholes can I find to get out of it? right? That, and, and, and if there is a legal loophole, it's like, oh yeah, well, you're perfectly justified in jumping through it. Here's the difference with a covenant. A covenant isn't just between me and you. In the Old Testament, a covenant was always between me, you, and God. God was always seen at the center of the agreement. God was seen at the center of the covenant. And when God was at the center of the covenant, the consequence was always greater than simply a, a legal slap on the hand. Okay, uh, We'll get into this in a moment, but a common way of making covenants during this period of time is they would actually take animals, cut them in half, s- separate the pieces, and then walk through it together. <laughs> and what they were saying when they did that basically was, if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, may God do this to me. May I be slaughtered. I mean, how much more seriously would you take your covenants, your contracts, if you knew God would kill you? if you didn't live up to it. You think you'd read the terms of service before you just click, yeah, yeah, I read that, right? I mean, all of a sudden, everything becomes a little bit more weighty, right? Covenants were like that. Now, the covenants that we're going to be talking about this morning are not just all of the covenants of the Old Testament, right? People made covenants with each other all the time. What we want to talk about are the covenants that God has made with us, the covenants that God has made with humanity, because there's a series of them. And as we look at those covenants, it shows us um, the progressive plan of God to redeem and restore. So what were those covenants? Well, the first one was with a guy named Adam, Adam and Eve. Um, and I know for some of you, if you're, if you're seminary students, you're going to get all technical on me and you're like, Steve, we don't know if this is an actual covenant. Okay, fine. But for this morning, I'm dealing with it. If you want to have a technical debate, we'll have it later. All of the elements of a covenant are not necessarily present, but there is a promise, okay? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve in His own image. 
they are walking in absolute joy and freedom in His presence until you get to Genesis 3, where they decide to rebel against God. They commit cosmic treason. They look at God and they say to Him, your glory will no longer be the center of the universe. We want to be the center. We don't want to revolve around you. We want you to revolve around us. We want all of your blessings, but we don't want any of the weight of relationship that comes with them. We want to use you. We don't want you. They looked at God and they rejected His fatherhood, His authority, and His sovereignty. And in that act of rebellion, they introduced death into the created order, which disrupted every relationship. Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the created order. Every relationship was disrupted by the introduction of sin and death into the world. So God in Genesis 3 is explaining to them the consequences of their choice. <laughs> Things are going to be messed up, you guys. That's what he's saying. Things are going to get really sticky from this point forward because I'm, you rejected me as the center. And without my glory at the center of, of all of your relationships, all of those relationships are going to be broken now. And in the middle of describing that, God makes an incredible promise. I mean, it's buried right in the middle of it. Genesis 3 is like this black chapter. It's like darkness. And this promise is like a spark of light in the middle of it. And it's actually easy to miss. He's actually talking to the serpent, who we know from biblical history is, is, is not just a snake, but, but in fact part of the cosmic warfare, um, Satan himself inhabiting and, and breaking into the material universe, trying to steal God's glory from him. And God looks at the snake and basically says to Satan, and he says to him, you won today, but there's going to be a seed of the woman a son of the woman. And, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's all it says. It's a really vague promise, but it's a very powerful promise. What he is saying right there in the middle of explaining the consequences of the cosmic rebellion that's been set loose in the created order is he says, there's a glimmer of hope because I'm making a promise. There will come one who crushes your head even though you bruise his heel. Jump ahead to another son of Adam, a guy named Noah. Noah is commissioned by God to create an ark, a really big boat, okay? Um, from what we can tell from, from um, the world at that time, um, he probably was not living near the sea. Uh, he probably was building this really big boat out in the middle of nowhere, Okay, and, and, and he's basically just building it because God told him to. And the, mean, and the whole time, he's basically preaching to everyone around them, God is going to bring a judgment on the land, um, and you need to repent. You need to believe, and you need to, to come and join us in this really big boat because God's going to send a flood. Okay, um, The Scripture says that during the time of the flood, the waters of the deep were broken up, and the waters of the heaven... Um, came down. And, and there are some scientists who believe that during that period of time, there was uh, a vapor canopy around the earth that actually protected life on earth, acted like a greenhouse that extended human life and made life on earth much more easy. And that after the flood, all of that came crashing down, that that was completely disrupted, um, which would explain obviously the appearance of the, the, uh, uh, the rainbow, because um, you have a different you know, it would have been new to them. It wasn't like God just created it. But that idea of the refraction of light through the water would have been um, unique because of the change. So God brought this, okay? The flood comes. Noah and his family are the only ones in the ark. They're the only ones that respond in faith. They get delivered to the other side. They climb out. Noah offers a sacrifice to God. And in that sacrifice, God comes and makes a promise to Noah and says to him, I will never flood the earth again. It's my covenant to you. I will never destroy the earth again by flood. 
jump ahead. A son of Noah, dude by the name of Abraham. Abram at that time, uh, a name that meant um, great father. Uh, God shows up to him. He lives in a place called Ur, <laughs> kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and basically says, Abram, go that way. Abram's like, just that way? Yeah, just start walking. I'll tell you when you get there. So Abram packs up all of his belongings, his family, and they just head out. They leave Ur. They start wandering in a specific direction. God, of course, has an intention. He is going to take them all the way to the land of Israel. But this is probably one of the most fascinating covenants in the Old Testament. It, this is the one that um, I just love it. When you study Genesis 12 through about 22, there's this interplay between Abraham and, and God. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means great father. Abraham means father of many. The problem is he doesn't have any kids. He can't have kids. He's married to Sarah, this beautiful woman, and, and they can't have kids. But God's promising in his covenant. What he says is, is Abram, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to become the father of a mighty nation. Your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. That's how numerous. I will, in fact, your, your, your son's going to be so great, I will bless the entire world your son. And then he waits until Abram is 100 years old and Sarah's 99. She's past menopause. It is physically impossible for them to get pregnant. That's when God gives them a baby. I mean, it's just like putting the exclamation point on the end of the sentence. I did this. This is a miracle. This is my gift. This is not just coincidence. I am fulfilling my covenant to you. So he makes a promise to Abraham. Now, in Genesis 15, it's actually really compelling because that promise is reiterated several times through these chapters. But in Genesis 15, God does something incredibly unusual. God actually goes through the covenant-making process with Abraham. He has Abraham gather the animals. He has Abraham slaughter the animals and spread them out on the ground for a, a normal um, uh, uh, covenant-making ceremony. And then God puts Abraham to sleep, and the glory of God passes through the animals by himself. I mean, it's pretty clear what he's saying. I am committing myself to this promise. I will do this. And if I don't, may I be struck dead? I'm making my promise sure by a vow, right? God's promises are pretty sure, but when he actually goes through a covenant-making ceremony, it's like, okay, we're going to be doubly sure here, right? This is kind of weird, but God basically saying this promise is unbreakable. So he makes a covenant with Abraham that I will bless the entire world through you. Jump ahead. A son of Abraham, a guy by the name of Moses. At this point, Israel has been enslaved in, in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've been crying out to God for deliverance. They're being abused on a, on a regular basis by the Egyptians. The Egyptians fear them and hate them. Um, and so God sends Moses, an unlikely deliverer, a guy who has a hard time even speaking publicly, and God says to him, you're going to become my mouthpiece. You're going to be the one that speaks to Pharaoh for me. And God brings radical deliverance through Moses. You guys probably are familiar with the story, the 10 plagues, trying to convince Pharaoh that he should let his people go. Um, Pharaoh hardening his heart until finally he releases them. Um, they leave. They take a bunch of gold from the Egyptians because the Egyptians are so happy to get rid of them. They're terrified at this point. At the last minute, Pharaoh changes his mind. Like, I'm going to track you guys down. God splits the Red Sea. They walk through the Red Sea as Pharaoh pursues them. God closes the water and destroys Pharaoh's armies. I mean, what an incredible, incredible act of deliverance. 
And then they move on from there to the base of Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God appears in a flame and in thunder and in, in an earthquake. And basically, God calls out and says this. He says, nobody touch the mountain. <laughs> Not even your cattle. If anybody touches the mountain, they'll be struck dead. But Moses, you come up here. So Moses goes up, okay, probably a little nervous. Um, and he meets God in the cloud. And God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. Now, essentially, it's, it's this. What he says is, I want you to go down and talk to the Israelites and let them know that, that I want to make them my peculiar people, my unique nation. Um, so here's the way it's going to work. I'll give you a bunch of laws represented by these Ten Commandments that I'll carve in stone. And if they'll obey those, then they get to be my peculiar people. They get to be my blessed nation. If they break them, they get cursed. So go find out if they want to do this. So Moses comes down the mountain and, uh, hey, everybody, God wants to make a deal. You guys in? Everyone's like, yes, whatever God says, we will do. So Moses goes back up the mountain. He's like, all right, we're in. Uh, we're signing the dotted line. God says, all right. So he gives him the Ten Commandments. Ironically, Moses comes back down the mountain. You know what, you know what the Israelites were doing? Moses comes back down the mountain and he finds the Israelites bowing down to a golden calf. They had melted down all the gold they took from Egypt and built a golden calf. I mean, day one of the agreement, they're already breaking commandment one. Make no other God, right? Have no other God before me. Make no graven image. I mean, commandments one and two, however you want to look at it, they're, they're already breaking it, right? Moses is like, are you kidding me? He gets so mad. He throws the commandments down, breaks them. God has to, to recarve them. And that becomes the history of Israel, them breaking continually the commandments. But that's the, the covenant he makes with Moses. There's a, there's a promise here. If you obey, then, then you'll be blessed. Jump forward to a guy named David. David is an unlikely hero. David is this dude that's working in a field. He's keeping the sheep. They are looking for the next king of Israel, right? Uh, they look at the sons of Jesse, and they identify everybody uh, but David, right? They're like, well, it could be this one or this one or this one or this one. They even forgot David existed, right? And, and Samuel's like, well, surely he's got another son because it's not any of these. And they're like, you surely can't mean David. He's the punk out in the field, right? He's that little scrawny kid. No, I think it's him. So they bring him in, and, and God makes a promise to David. He makes a covenant with David, and he says to David, your seed, your son, will sit on the throne forever. Forever. You will have a son on the throne of Israel forever. This series of covenants shows us a progressive movement of God's plan. And there's one more covenant we need to talk about, and that one is actually a promised covenant. We don't see it inaugurated in the Old Testament. It's simply called the New Covenant. When you get to Jeremiah chapter 31, what God says is basically this, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the people of God. What is that covenant going to be? Well, when, when that covenant comes, I'll give you a new heart. I will give you a heart of flesh instead of your heart of stone. Right now, you have a heart of stone. It's dead to me. It's dead to, to God's glory. It is dead to the life of God. It seeks life in everything but God and never finds it. I will take that dead heart out of you, and I will give you a new heart of flesh, a spiritual heart that is alive to God and alive to the glory of God, the center of all things, the, things, the, the very thing that we were designed to find our life in. So we have this series of covenants. 
All right, we need to, to talk a little bit because our passage says we've been alienated from the covenants of promise. What does that mean? Well, throw that next slide up. I want you to see something, okay? As you walk through, so you simply look at these covenants, I want you to see something. He said to Adam, I will send a son, and that son will, will crush the serpent's head, and even though his heel is bruised, I will. With Noah, I will never flood the earth again. With Abraham, I will bless you with, with a son, and the entire world will be blessed through that son. Jump to David. I will give you a son and an eternal kingdom. Jump down to the new covenant. I will give you a new heart. See, these are unconditional covenants. An unconditional covenant is essentially a promise. It's God basically saying, I commit myself to this. It's a one-way covenant. It's a vow. This is God saying, I have purposed to do this regardless of who you are, what you've done. Now, let's play a little game that I learned on Sesame Street. Which one of these is not like the other? You ever play that game? Which one of these is not like the other? All right, I'm not going to sing anymore. Um, yeah, look at the, the commandment. Look at the one with Moses, okay? If you keep my laws, then you will be my people. The Mosaic Covenant, which is also called the Law or the Old Covenant, is fundamentally different. There's a promise here. It's a covenant of promise, but the promise is conditional. The promise is dependent, not on God's will, but on the Israelites. So there's two things that, that are going on here that I think it's important for us to see. The first is that God is emphasizing this sense of the insider and outsider. He is progressively drawing a circle of the insider that gets narrower and narrower and narrower. He begins with all of humanity. There will be a son of Eve, right? And, and then it gets down to a son of Noah. And then it gets down to a son of Abraham. And then it gets down, we don't see that, but a son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Um, and, and then from Isaac, it, there's two sons there, Jacob and Esau. It'll be a son of Jacob, right? All the way down to it'll be a son of David. There's this progressive narrowing of blessing. God is saying, I will bless you. Well, let's draw that circle a little tighter. I will bless you. Let's draw that circle a little tighter. I will bless you. And in drawing that circle, what I want you to see is he is actually emphasizing there are people inside the blessing and there are people outside the blessing. There are people that are inside the covenant and people that are outside the covenant. And that narrowing scope of blessing ironically works through a series of unlikely people, and it moves from a promise to a race down to a promise to a single person, which we'll explain in a moment. The second thing that I think we need to see here is that God is also addressing the way we deal with the problem that that alienation creates. See, God narrowing the covenant is simply highlighting an alienation that already exists. And what he's doing is highlighting the way that we deal with it. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with this sense that we are alienated from something we desperately need? Well, the reality is we try to fix ourselves. We try to figure it out, try to figure out what it is about me that keeps me alienated from the thing that I think I am pursuing. What is it that makes me unworthy and so we seek to improve ourselves. And if we can't improve the thing that we think makes us unworthy, we instead focus on an area that is stronger and try and make that strength so strong that our weakness becomes inconsequential in comparison. 
we are, in a sense, doing the very thing that Israel did. We're trying to live by the law. If I can just fix myself, then I will be good. Now think about the way this plays out. I I have a friend that I met with this weekend, and in talking with him, we were talking about his move to this area. And, And when he moved here, he had actually downsized his house. He had a very large home previously. When he moved here, they purposely bought a smaller home, a home that was modest but very nice. And, and in buying a, a, a smaller, modest home, they were uh, making choices. Um, it's not that they couldn't afford something bigger, but they were making deliberate choices about how they wanted to live their life, what they wanted to invest their, their energy, their time, their money into. What's ironic is that one of their parents was a guy who, who had progressively through his life moved from home to home to home to home, and each one of those homes was bigger than the last one. Each one was more spacious. Each one was more luxurious. Each one was, was, was um, bigger, you know, more cars in the garage, all of that. And when they moved from a bigger home to a smaller home, two things happened. One, he completely couldn't understand it. Why anybody who had ever wanted downsize made no sense to him. And secondly, he found it threatening. Why would anyone find it threatening that you would go buy a smaller house? You know why? Because when you don't value what makes me valuable, I'm threatened. And we all do this. We all do this. This is our way of ultimately trying to bridge the gap and make ourselves more meaningful. I mean, if you think about it this way, and, and this is, if you, what are the things that our culture values? Our culture values beauty, physical beauty. Right now, it's this whole, like, the sculpted physique thing. And we all know what I'm talking about, right? This, we all, the, the dudes that, 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 you know, you see every muscle, right? And, and the coveted six-pack. Right? We all know what that is. Right? Ironic, it's actually an eight-pack, but we know what that is. It's just this, man, I can see every stomach muscle. You have like 0.0002% body fat, right? And because of that, man, every muscle just is so clear. And we're like, man, look at this physique, right? And you're just like, every chance you get, you're like taking your, you know, it's like at the gym, you're like wearing this. You just love to show off. What would happen if you were like transported back in time or to another society that didn't value 0% body fat physique. <laughs> We're kind of weird, I'm telling you. That, that has not always been the human ideal. They actually, let's say they valued a little bit of body fat because it's actually valuable and healthy. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you show up and you're like, mm, everybody's jealous of me. And they're like, yeah, not so much. You look sick. You should eat something, dude. Here, let me feed you, right? And you're like, no, man. Like, this makes me valuable. You know what's going to happen in your heart? One of two things. The first thing that's going to happen in your heart is you're going to think these people are so stupid. They're so regressive. How come they don't get that this makes me beautiful? How come they don't get that this makes me beautiful, valuable, I'm strong, and they should look up to me for this, right? And, and, And the reason you alienate them is because you feel alienated. The very thing you value, you base your value on, they don't value, so they become a threat to you. One of two things will happen coming out of that. One is you will either change to become like them, or two, you will forever put them in the category of stupid. They just don't get it. If they just knew, someday they'll get it and they'll look back and they'll be like, oh my goodness, Steve, he had the best body in the world, right? Someday they'll be able to look back and they'll value it because then they'll come to their senses and realize. So, so we'll either change 
our values to become like them or we will put them in the category of stupid because they don't value what we value. Why are we doing that? It's because we are trying to be on the inside. We're trying to bridge the gap of, of whatever it is that's making us unworthy. And we do this all the time. We try to make ourselves more beautiful, more suave, more attractive, more powerful, more, more intelligent. Some of you, man, you study pop culture. You, why? Because, man, it makes you really valuable. You know, you know what, who, who produced every song on this album. You, you know who produced every song on all of the... You, you, you know every reference in Lost or Seinfeld or whatever it is, Walking Dead, whatever's most popular at the time. You're, you're that guy, man. You're just, you know, you're more intelligent. You're more influential. You're cooler. You're funnier. You're more fun. You, you finally fit in. You guys, this is dysfunctional, <laughs> that we would gain our value based on other people thinking we're valuable, that I finally measure up because you think I'm in? This surface social dysfunction is an outgrowth of a very deep sense of universal alienation. Reread verses 11 and 12 with me. Take a look. It says, therefore, remember, remember, that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. The word Gentiles is a word, a Greek word that means nations. It means everybody who's not a Jew. At the time when God set up these covenants, you were on the outside. You and I were Gentiles. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Every male was circumcised on the eighth day after birth. They were the only nation that widely practiced circumcision during this period of time. It was a physical sign that said, we're inside, you're outside. And it wasn't surprising that the Jews became incredibly proud of their circumcision. <laughs> I don't really know how you show that off, but they, they knew, right? There was this sense, we are the circumcised ones, right? We are the, right? And that's what he's getting at when he says, you're the ones who were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision. They'd become so proud that they were the insiders, Right? And, and it reminds us, you were outside, right? It was made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Why? The Greek word Christ is the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah was promised to the Jews. The Messiah was promised through the covenants. You were outside of the covenants as a Gentile. You were alienated. That's what he says. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from their history, from their covenants, from God's promises. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. And as a result, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. The historical context is incredibly valuable to our understanding in these verses. What he's saying is you need to remember that. You need to look back and remind yourselves you were on the outside. God drew a circle of blessing and you weren't in it. You were alienated from it. And we should feel the weight of that. Because ultimately, we need to recognize that our attempts to bridge that gap are futile. Now here's the ironic thing, you guys. It was just as futile for the Israelites. That's why God gave the law to the Israelites. That's why God gave the covenant of Moses 
to Moses and the Israelites to remind them that they were on the outside too. We're a nation that loves the Ten Commandments, and a lot of times Christians get really hung up on, man, we love the Ten Commandments. We want to publish published in all the public places. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are supposed to do? They're supposed to weigh on you like a rock. They're supposed to crush you. When you look at them, it's like a super magnifying mirror that shows you every flaw. The Ten Commandments do not help you become better. The Ten Commandments do not show you how to live a right life. They just show you how far you fall. Because like the Israelites who broke them on the very first day, so would we. The Ten Commandments are not the path to becoming better. They are the path to knowing how, you, how, how far short you fall. They simply announce that you're not worthy. And Paul, in fact, says it's worse. It's not just a mirror that shows you how bad you are. The law actually stirs up how bad you are. That when you take the law and you try and become better, like, man, I'm just going to become better. I'm going to obey these Ten Commandments. I'm going to do these right things. What ends up happening is that law actually stirs up the sin in your heart. It doesn't make you more sinful, but it makes you more aware of how sinful you already were. The law doesn't have the ability to deliver you. It only has the ability to condemn you. I have a friend that lived in South County in, in St. Louis, and he came home one day, and it was one of those trips that, that we would all dread having, right? He's driving through the neighborhood, and this odor strikes him, and it's horrible. <laughs> and, and the closer he gets to home, the stronger it gets. He's like, man, what is going on with this neighborhood? Climbs out of his car, realizing at that moment that the odor is actually coming from his home, okay? Not, not, not a pleasant homecoming, right? He goes into his house. The, the smell is overwhelming, and he walks through the house, he opens up the door to the basement, looks down, and sees about a foot of brown goo, stuff floating in it. Like, and I'm not lying, this is for real. I mean, this is, what had happened was the sewer had backed up, and all of, all of the waste from his block was coming to his house, and it was coming up in his basement. Not a pleasant homecoming. Now, he had had his kid's playroom downstairs. No joke, not making this up. Kid's playroom downstairs. He looked down at the bottom of the stairs, and there was a toy floating in the goo, and it was a Bob the Builder little toy. And it's sitting there, short-circuiting, flashing, saying, can we fix it? Yes, we can. No joke. That's actually happening. I mean, the irony is horrible for him in that moment. But you guys, what I want you to catch is this. That's a beautiful picture of the giving of the law. The Israelites had no idea how sinful they actually were. We have no idea. God gave them the law not to deliver them, but to show them they needed to be delivered. God created this circle and said, you're the insider. But, but to keep you from getting puffed up in pride, I'm going to give you something that crushes you. I'm going to put you on the inside circle of blessing, and then I'm going to show you that you can't have it in your own power. I'm going to give you this law, and that law is simply going to crush you. And the problem was they didn't know it. They were floating face down in the cesspool of their own sin, covered, completely helpless in their brokenness and their sin. And they're saying, can we do this? Yes, we can. And God's like, all right, let's give it a little bit of time. Let's just put the weight of the law on you and let it slowly crush you so that you come to realize you're just as alienated as everybody else. In fact, take a look at verses 13 through 16 because God, in order to deliver us, had to do something about the law. Verse 13, but now, but now, 
That's how you were. Remember how you were, alienated, Gentiles, outside. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are outside have been brought near through the cross. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, both who? Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What divided us? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the Mosaic law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. He's making a new humanity, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Hostility of what? Hostility of the law. And he came and preached peace to those of you who were far off and to those who were near, both Jew and Gentile. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. You guys, here's the deal. As we look at covenant history, what you need to realize is that Jesus is the solution to our alienation. The gospel is the fulfillment of covenant history. Jesus is the hero of covenant history. I mean, think about this, you guys. I mean, look at this. God made a covenant with Adam, right? Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the one who obeyed where Adam disobeyed. He is the one who was obedient to the point of death. Instead of rejecting uh, uh, God's plan for him, he completely submitted himself to it. Jesus is the true and better son of Eve who came to crush the head of the serpent even though his heel was bruised on the cross. He crushed the power of sin even though he had to do it at a dear cost to himself. He is the true and better Noah. He is the one who safely takes us through the judgment. He is the true and better ark who bears the judgment on our behalf and keeps us safe inside. He is the true and better rainbow, the bridge between God and man, the beautiful revelation that God has a plan to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He is the true and better Abraham, the one who left his father's house and and went on a journey, a mission simply sent by the authority on mission for God. He is the true and better Isaac, the son of Abraham, who, who was taken to the top of the mountain and sacrificed. But unlike physical Isaac, Jesus wasn't delivered at the last minute. He went to the cross and he died. And like God who passed through the the slain animals, Jesus himself was slain in order to keep his covenant to bless. He is the true and better Abraham. He is the true and better Moses, the law keeper. He was the first man, the first Jewish man ever born who completely fulfilled the law. The first Jewish man ever born who, who never broke the law, completely fulfilled it and earned its blessing and then died under its curse. Not because he broke it, but because the nation of Israel had, and he bore their curse on their behalf. He was crushed so that they could be made whole. He was the true and better law keeper. He was the true and better David, the one who has a lasting kingdom that will never fade and never fail. He will never be dethroned, and he is in the process of redeeming and restoring a new humanity to indwell that kingdom for his glory and for our joy for all of eternity. Because he brought in a new covenant, a new covenant that we call the gospel, a new covenant that says, I will give you a new heart, not based on what you have done for me, but based on what I have done for you. 
The covenant of the gospel is not if, then. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. The covenant of the gospel is I will. I will bless you. I will give you a new identity. I will give you a new heart. I will do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. It's a covenant of promise. When we look at the scope of covenant history, it shows us the desperate state from which we come and the glorious state to which we've been delivered because we have a covenant hero. We have one that the entire story revolves around and he is the one that ultimately will keep his promise. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who gives life. And his promise is very simply this, you are alienated from God because of your sin, but he will bring you near because of his obedience. You will be made right by his grace, the outpouring of his favor that you didn't earn and you can't deserve. And you will be made part of a new humanity in which Jew, Gentile, race, socioeconomic, Gender barriers are all erased. And we are brought into a new kingdom. The only thing that's left for us to do is believe. It simply is to receive the message and trust that the messenger is who he says he is and that he's done what he has said he has done. Because when we believe by faith, when we trust By grace, you're saved through faith.